Welcome to Prajna Spark's Contemplation Interlude, where Yeshe and Tanya discuss the previous full episode on impermanence, the first of the four hallmarks of the Buddha's teachings. Please take a moment to like, follow, and review Prajna Sparks. This is the best possible offering as it helps us reach new listeners. Hi, Tanya. Hello, Yeshe. It's so much fun to have you back. I am delighted to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, thank you for coming to visit us, which made it a lot easier to have you come back on to Prajna Sparks for a special event. Plus, I know that impermanence was a topic that you were really wanting to do on Prajna Sparks while you and I were working on this regularly. So it just fit perfectly. Yes, I'm really happy. I was I was eager to uh, discuss impermanence, and so I'm so happy to have a chance to do that. Great. You know, I also wanted to share with you how I have noticed, you know, you are always talking about listening, contemplating, and meditating, in case the listeners haven't noticed that. Um, <laughs> and I have noticed something about my own contemplations now that I'm no longer writing songs about all of the teachings. This is just really interesting to for me to sort of think about that contemplation piece and how important it was for me to have a specific almost homework that I was doing for contemplation to really get me to listen more carefully and to listen with a mind truly trying to understand what was going on and the intricacies of it. And I, I find that if I don't have a specific homework assignment, like writing a song or having a conversation with you, it's much easier for me to listen passively. I don't know if this is helpful at all to you or your listeners, but just to maybe think about if you find yourself listening passively, maybe come up with a specific way that you're going to contemplate. Give yourself some homework about that, because I know for me, that just helps me to get so much more out of the teaching. That's wonderful, Tanya. It really hits so many points about that integrative Dharma practice consisting of listening, contemplating, and meditating. Listening is, as you say, not just passively listening, which can be a tricky thing when you're talking about a podcast that you're listening to on a run or on your way to the grocery store or as you're doing something around the house. Listening in this context really means a couple of things. It means being very attentive. It means being receptive. You're ready for the material. And it means retaining the material. And what you're describing is that when you come to a talk with the sense of, oh, I'm going to have to do something with this <laughs> when this talk is over. Those things, you hit those boxes right away. You're attentive, you're receptive, and you're retaining the material because you're going to use it. So it's one of the brilliant elements of this way of working with not just Dharma teachings, but certainly Dharma teachings is the context here. When you know you're going to take that material into contemplation, that prajna, that precise knowledge is primed and ready from the moment you start listening. And then the same thing happens when you're contemplating. You know you're processing that precise knowledge, that prajna, for meditative inquiry in the meditation stage. So that's wonderful to hear your experience. I think that's spot on. 
Excellent. Well, I am so excited to talk about the teaching that you did on impermanence. Um, and I have some questions about it. The first question I have is you talked about that all conditioned things are impermanent. And that leads me to wonder, is there anything that's not conditioned, anything that's not susceptible to impermanence? If you want to look at the four hallmarks of the Buddhist teaching as a practice, as a way of engaging our experience, what they're leading to is precisely that question. What isn't conditioned? What isn't defiled? What does empty and non-self point to? And what they point to is nirvana, the peace of being beyond conditioned and unconditioned, beyond defiled and undefiled, beyond emptiness, non-self. We'll, of course, hear more about that in the fourth of the four seals, but it's a wonderful question to have right now. In our immediate experience of samsara, these features describe the experience of dukkha, the first of the Buddha's four truths of noble beings. This is often described as suffering, discomfort, lack of fulfillment, and it's all of those things. True suffering has these qualities to it. It is characterized by impermanence, discomfort, and non-self that is empty. Thank you for that. Yeah, I was thinking about how the teaching about impermanence is not just about things ending. It's also about things not having always existed previously. So I was sort of going down that path of thinking of, okay, well, what is there that didn't exist previously? Like, well, what about the earth? Well, it seems like there was a time before there was the earth. So then the earth must be impermanent also. That doesn't necessarily mean the whole earth is going to go away tomorrow, but like you were talking about, it's subtly changing. Sometimes, some days not so subtly, but I appreciate this way of thinking about impermanence that it's about things didn't exist previously, or at least they didn't exist in the way that they do currently, right? That's exactly the case. And what we'll see with these four hallmarks is how they start to almost bleed one to another. So understanding the subtle most impermanence is what actually guides us into an understanding of dukkha at very deep levels. And that's what guides us into an understanding of non-self at deep levels. And really seeing the non-dual way of perceiving experience is what leads us into nirvana. So yes, everything that we experience within samsara, samsara being a way of experiencing rather than a place or a thing, Everything we experience from the perspective of not seeing things as they are is going to be characterized by these three things, impermanence, suffering, and non-self. Seeing impermanence in that way is actually very helpful because otherwise it's just like, yeah, so what? You know, things, things are born and they die, but has actually lots of really subtle ramifications for our life and our happiness and ways to live in the world that are more fulfilling and actually meet our highest aspirations for ourselves and our relationships with others, the planet, and so forth. I was thinking about how some understanding of impermanence can affect our behavior in different ways. And this might be more of a coarse understanding of impermanence, 
I was thinking about, as I often am, the items that are discontinued at Trader Joe's. And I always think, okay, I'm just going to accept this as a lesson in impermanence because it happens all the time. It's of course always, you know, my favorite things that I notice are gone. But I actually took a different approach to my favorite mug, which I love so much that I bought three of them because I am aware of impermanence. So I'm very sure I'm going to break one. (laughs) And I wanted to make sure I had them. And I thought, I'm not really sure that this is what I'm supposed to do in terms of impermanence, because it seems like maybe it's increasing my attachment in some way to stockpile my favorite mug as a way of dealing with impermanence. So I thought perhaps you'd have some wisdom that you could offer me here. Yeah. (laughs) That does kind of go counter to the intention. The intention in general is to lighten our grip on things. That doesn't mean you can't buy more of your mugs because you know that you're going to break them. Or as a friend of mine says, they're broken when you bought them. The intention is that we don't get so attached to things when we know that we have them for a limited time. What's more, we can actually have greater appreciation, greater gratitude, and a greater sense of enjoyment when we know that we have a brief time with a thing or a person or life and make the most of it, really connect with a sense of enjoyment and abundance rather than grasping. Now, that doesn't mean you can't also buy your mug, (laughs) Uh, multiple copies of your mug because you enjoy it. Each one of those is going to have a span of time. At some point or another, you will come to the last one and it will break. Hard truths, hard truth. So you brought up life also as something that is impermanent. And so I was wondering how we might use these teachings on impermanence to deal with death. And I'm thinking both about preparation for our own death, as well as how we respond to other people dying. This is one of the most important immediate ways that the teaching on impermanence can be of benefit. The Buddha actually taught that impermanence is the most important of all contemplations for this and other reasons. But for example, none of us really thinks we're going to live forever. Once we have a certain level of understanding, we all know we're going to die. We all know that people that we love are going to die. And yet, almost every time, we are shocked when it happens. And we have a great deal of grief. The contemplation and meditation on impermanence will not remove grief. But in some ways, the Buddhist teachings are actually connecting us with the reasonableness of grief. It's tragic that beings whose nature is Buddha, complete enlightenment, blissful, untainted by the slightest discomfort, wise, powerful, capable, because of not knowing their true nature and the nature of things, are troubled by birth, aging, illness, and death, birth, aging, illness, and death, over and over again, not just in this life, but countless times. They're very poignant, poetic descriptions of this cycle in the teachings, for example, of Nagarjuna where he says, if you put together all of the mother's milk we've ingested in all of our lives, it would be larger than all of the oceans of the world. 
it's not just that this life isn't permanent. It's not just that we're heading to death and we are in denial to some extent, but this happens again and again. And it's completely contrary to our nature of being in a constant state of bliss. Now, when I say constant, that too has an impermanence to it, which is something that I hear some folks misunderstand in the Tibetan expression. Even the state of enlightenment of Buddhahood has flux to it. There's movement to it. It's just flux that is not tainted by suffering. It's not tainted by ignorance and so forth. What all of these things help us to do, and most importantly, what meditative inquiry, the actual meditation practice that brings these teachings from listening to contemplating and down into our hearts, what they do is they bring us into a clear-eyed state of non-denial where we recognize that we are going to die, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, in such a way that it changes the way we live. So for example, I know that if I jump out in front of a truck, it's going to hit me and I will probably die or get very injured. So what happens? I don't jump out in front of a truck because I know that's what's going to happen. It changes my action. What these teachings do, if you listen to them, is they intrigue you. If you contemplate and don't go any further, they can intrigue you even more, and they can even give you interesting topics to discuss at dinner parties. If you take that and you meditate on it, using the technique of meditative inquiry, it changes the way you act, the way you live, the way you engage with news of an acquaintance, a friend a loved one who has passed. It doesn't keep you from being sad, but it changes the way you respond to that sadness in ways that become increasingly aligned with our true nature. Thank you. That is so beautiful. And, you know, it occurs to me that there's this level of understanding impermanence that's about mugs and discontinued items at Trader Joe's, but If I even took that farther, if I even took that into meditative inquiry, I would have an understanding beyond just what to do with my purchasing habits. This practice can be applied to impermanence, to dukkha, to non-self, to nirvana, and it could be applied to your mug and to your tea at Trader Joe's. And also, if you have panic attacks, anxiety, other states of mind that seem so solid, so inescapable, discovering that they are actually impermanent, that their discomfort is something that you have something to do with. We don't have the control to stop it definitively, short of nirvana, but there are things we can do by pulling this condition out that it depends on. That's what it means to be conditional. Depends on certain things. Let's say it depends on five things, just to give a random number. Very few things depend on only five other things. It's usually an infinite array of things. But if you pull just one of those things out, it's like those big block structures, and you try to pull out just the one at the bottom without the whole thing collapsing. At some point, you will pull one of those things out, and the whole thing collapses. It's like that right in our experience. 
It takes time. It takes patience. And there is no ultimate way to end the anxiety, the fear, the panic, the suffering, short of complete liberation from samsara. But there are many ways to heal and to transform as we engage with samsaric experience so that ultimately we transcend that dualistic, mistaken way of experiencing reality. And we are able to experience reality just as it is, just as we are. Thank you so much. Thank you, T. Join us on the new moon for our next full episode. We can't thank you enough for taking the time to like, follow, share, and review Prajna Sparks. It means a lot to us. If you have any questions, contact us via email, Instagram, or Facebook. Check the episode notes for those links and for more resources on today's topic. Visit us on the web at prajnafire.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Prajna Sparks. Thank you for listening. May all beings benefit.